0: the premier of Ontario, Doug Ford! During the presentation portion of the Raptors Championship Parade, Ontario Premier Doug Ford got booed by 2.5 million Raptors fans. Now, after I show you this clip, I'm also going to break down exactly why Doug Ford and his party are hated so much. Because some people may think, well, this party just formed a majority government last year. So if there's this, you know, this new party that formed a majority government, why are they hated so much? Well, their support has been an illusion from the beginning. And I'm going to show you exactly uh, why they are even more hated now. But first, here's the video. So I'm going to give you the full context. The first two people come out, there is, you know, a mild reaction. And then Doug Ford comes out, and you're going to hear the difference. CEO of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, Michael Friesdall. The Premier of Ontario, Doug Ford. The Chairman of Rogers Communications, Edward Rogers. So Clearly, a big reaction there, and uh, my cousin was actually in the crowd. She was way at the back, but she said that the boos were <laughs> way louder than you can hear on that video. Uh, there were chants of "Doug Ford, you suck." Uh, so, I, it, I mean, what we see on the video is actually not even uh, a true representation of how it actually sounded there on the ground. Now, as I was saying earlier, you know, people may think, but Doug Ford and his, his party, they just formed a majority government last year. I mean, they can't be that unpopular, right? This is just a bunch of, you know, some some people that live in Toronto, some, some, uh, some Raptors fans. Okay, they don't like Doug Ford, whatever. No. Let me first show you on election night how his victory looked. So if you look at the popular vote, his progressive conservative party only won 40% of the vote. So if you actually combine the other uh, more left parties, so the NDP, the Liberals and the Greens, they uh, amount to about 3.3 million votes, almost a million more votes than the Conservatives. Yet, because of our first past the post system, this progressive Conservative uh, Party was able to form a majority government, even with only 40% of the vote. So even from the beginning, most people did not want to see Doug Ford as the Premier of Ontario. Now, also let's look at current support for uh, for Doug Ford. So, if you look at all of Canada, there is a fifty-five percent negative uh, impression of Doug Ford. But when you go down to Ontario, the people that have to actually deal with him, sixty-one percent of people have a negative impression of uh, of Doug Ford, and sixteen percent is is neutral. So, why do people hate Doug Ford and this Progressive Conservative Party? Chatelaine magazine has a great breakdown. I have to admit, I never read this magazine ever, but they have a fantastic breakdown because it's so hard to keep track of everything uh, Doug Ford has, has done. So this is actually only a sample of what the full article shows. So I'll link to this full article below the video. But here is a sampling of what this government has done in just a year. Frozen public sector wage increases at 1%. Reversed half a billion dollars in municipal funding. Cut annual funding for stem cell research. Cut an unclear amount of funding from Violence Against women Shelter Services. Cut health policy and research funding. Cut $1 billion from Toronto Public Health over the next 10 years. Cut all legal aid for refugee and immigration cases and 30% of the general legal aid budget. Cut free tuition for low-income students. Cut $25 million in funding for specialized school programs. Cancelled rent control in new buildings, three provincial uh, watchdog positions, and more. Cancelled labor reform, Bill 148, which included cancelling an increase on the minimum wage as well as cancelling two paid sick days. Cancelled the Green Ontario Fund. Cancelled $100 million in funding for school repairs. And as I said... That wasn't everything. And in fact, I have even more cuts to get to. So during the campaign, Doug Ford said that under our government, not a single person will lose their job. But of course, Doug Ford is a liar. He cut thousands of full-time teaching positions. And actually, this story came out just today. Breaking, the Ontario government is laying off 400 people and cutting another 400 vacant jobs as it merges healthcare agencies it's only been a year. This is what Doug Ford has done so far. And as I said, this isn't even everything. But don't worry. He also canceled a planned surtax on the wealthy worth $275 million a year in revenue. So while Doug Ford is going around saying we have no money for anything, we have to make all these cuts. He handed over $275 million a year to the wealthiest people in Ontario. That money could have been used anywhere else. Now, let's also... uh, I'm not done here. So those boos for me weren't enough. Let's go back in time. Let's look at, uh, I think this was just a a couple months ago, where Doug Ford was booed at the opening of the Special Olympics Youth Games in Toronto.
1: I haven't heard that much energy in a long time. My friends... That's the first
0: event I've ever had some booze, but anyways. Yeah, uh, that wasn't the first time that Doug Ford was booed. Let's also look at this clip from uh, Doug Ford at the 2014 mayoral debate at the Tannenbaum Community Hebrew Academy.
1: You know something, my my doctor, my Jewish doctor, my Jewish dentist, my Jewish lawyer, my Jewish accountant, we've learned, our family, can you please, please let me finish? Our family has the utmost respect. Let me finish, please. My family has the utmost respect for the Jewish community.
0: Doug Ford is clueless. This is a guy, as I've said countless times, born into wealth, inherited his business. His father was also an MPP, so he inherited connections from that. Doug Ford has had everything handed to him. And he has no interest in helping the average person, has no interest in even knowing what life is like for the average person. I mean, some people that are born into wealth and privilege, they take the the time and the steps to to recognize how lucky they are and use their time on earth to actually help other people. Doug Ford is not that. Doug Ford is a liar. All he cares about is himself and his rich buddies. And the entire progressive conservative party on top of that is completely incompetent, allowing Doug Ford to run around and do whatever the hell he wants to do. And we have three more years of this. If you know anything about anything, you know that Joe Biden leans to the right. But it may surprise you to find out that Biden has been courting all kinds of big donors, even big Trump donors. So this story came out on uh, CNBC. Billionaire GOP donor and Trump supporter says he rejected Joe Biden's request for fundraising help. Democratic frontrunner Joe Biden on Monday appealed to a billionaire Republican donor for fundraising help in his presidential campaign. But the financier, Trump-supporting New York supermagnet John Matitas, declined. Biden spoke to Katsimatidis, who has an estimated net worth of $3.1 billion for about 10 minutes at a a fundraiser held at the New York home of short seller Jim Chanos, according to the businessman. When Biden asked for his help, quote, I just smiled, uh, Katsimatidis said. Now, this is amazing. (laughs) I mean, I'm, I'm running out of reactions when it comes to things that Joe Biden does. This is just like, this is not. I mean, I guess this is kind of surprising, but it's not really surprising. It's Joe Biden holds these big fundraisers. So, whoever wants to come, whoever is a billionaire or, you know, a hundred millionaire, can pay the entrance fee of $2,800, which is just pocket change for these people. Come in there, and they can potentially now be a Joe Biden voter, even though they're also giving to Trump and Republicans. I mean, this is how the whole system works, this is how it's operated for at least the last 40 years. So Joe Biden is a relic of the old system, or I should say the current system, but in this process of trying to change it, he is a relic of this old system. Where compared to like Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders holds zero private fundraisers, is only raising money from individual donors, has grassroots support, the the biggest volunteer base, doesn't have any PAC money, isn't taking any money from corporations, I mean, these are two very distinctly different campaigns. Even though, as I think you're going to see uh, in the future, a lot of Biden's support, I think will go to Bernie Sanders because a lot of these people that support Biden, uh, Biden right now, they think he has or he's this working class guy because he has this veneer of being a working class guy, and he has this attachment to Barack Obama as his obvious his, his VP. But when they learn more and more and more about Biden and see that he is still playing this game of courting the these big donors, including Trump donors, uh, I think people are going to realize that this is not working-class Joe, that the only real working-class candidate in this race is Bernie Sanders. Now, to be super fair, Elizabeth Warren, so look, I'm talking about top-tier candidates, so in terms of lower-tier candidates who may be also um, using the same sort of strategy in terms of fundraising, only from individual donors— yeah, there are other candidates that that do this. I believe Tulsi Gabbard is one of them. But if we're talking about candidates right now that are pulling at the top, like the top 5 candidates, Bernie Sanders is the only one that has uh that is guaranteed to to stick to this plan of only raising from individual donors. Elizabeth Warren, on the other hand, is doing this in the primary, but if she wins uh the nomination in the general, she will take money from everywhere. So, to me that's uh that's a mark on, on on Warren. I don't think she should be doing that. But that's what she said. She has said. So, um, there's more here. Now, while this Trump donor did not donate to Joe Biden, he does still like Joe Biden. So check this out. Katsimatidis, who owns the New York supermarket chain, uh, Titas <laughs> All these names. Too many ridiculous names. Uh, I think it's Grist- Gristitis. Uh, and ran for mayor in 2013, had praise for Biden, but he is sticking with President Donald Trump in 2020. Katsimatidis was an invited guest to the Monday fundraiser and did not contribute to Biden's campaign to gain entrance. Quote, I think Joe Biden is the most common sense nominee of the 23 people running in the Democratic Party, he said. Uh, monetarily, I did not commit to helping him, but I will treat him fairly on my radio show. Of course, this guy has a radio show of course, if you have billions of dollars, you can have a radio show. Um, Then again, I had a radio show and I don't have a billion dollars. So (laughs) there's multiple ways to get there. But I also made no money being on the radio. Now, this is the, the most amazing part of this entire quote here. He thinks Biden is the common sense choice in the Democratic Party. When you have a big Trump donor calling Biden the common sense choice, if you're a Biden supporter right now, you should begin to question why you are supporting Biden. This this gives it away. Biden is not going to challenge the system. He's not going to challenge anything. It's going to be the status quo, the status quo that led to Donald Trump. So if Biden somehow wins the nomination and somehow beats Trump, get ready for Trump 2.0 four years later. Now, um there's lots more in this article. So something else that you may find amazing. So I as I said, he's a, a Trump donor. He gave 100,000 to Trump in 2016. But he also donated more than $116,000 to Hillary Clinton in 2016 as well. Like many of these big donors, he plays the field. So even though he's not giving to Biden now, I would be shocked if he didn't give to Biden later on in the race, especially if Biden begins to slip. And this guy thinks his money might help Biden in, in, in the polls. So this is what these billionaires do. They can afford to do this. They give to everybody. And then whoever wins, they call them later on and ask for a favor. That's how this whole game is played. Now that said, uh, Titus did uh, put this out on Twitter, pledging his support to Donald Trump. On this great day of Trump kicking off his 2020 campaign in Orlando, I want to make it clear. Me and my family are supporting Donald Trump 100%. We are fighting for the soul of America. Ah, yes, the soul of America. Donald Trump is definitely the guy to support if you worry about the soul of America. Dear God. Uh, But you know what? If you're worrying about Biden, don't. Biden has plenty of money to... to, uh, Take from these big donors. So uh, Chanos, according to a pool report, said the event brought in nearly 180 guests. Donors contributed $2,800. People familiar with the Chanos donor uh, retreat and other Biden fundraisers set for Tuesday in New York said they anticipate the events to bring in a total of at least $1 million. The Tuesday fundraisers will be will be held at law firms Paul Weiss, Rifkind, Wharton and Garrison, and White and Luxembourg. A Biden representative did not return a request for comment. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know. When a Biden representative is refusing to comment on the story about him raising lots of money, this is not how this kind of thing went years ago. So the way that these these races have normally been covered. It's all about the money race. Who can get the biggest donors? Who can get the biggest corporate backers? Oh, that person has the best chance of winning. But now, because of the way Bernie ran in 2016, and because of the way he's running this time, it has changed the entire narrative, where raising money from these big donors is actually a liability, because it makes you look terrible. Because it should make you look terrible. It showcases that you are not going to listen to actual voters. You will once again, like any other typical politician, listen to your big donors. So Biden's campaign, not even returning a request for comment on this, shows you that they are well aware of how bad this looks. Now, uh, in case there's uh, any doubt of what Biden is about, this from Politico, Biden promises wealthy donors he would not demonize the rich. Quote, we can disagree in the margins, but the truth of the matter is it's all within our wheelhouse and nobody has to be punished. No one's standard of living will change. End quote. He continued, addressing a well-heeled group, including the former Clinton Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, former Deputy Treasury Secretary Roger Altman and Goldman Sachs Chief Financial Officer Stephen Scheer, according to reports. No one's standard of living will change. What does this mean? This means more sports cars, mansions, and yachts for the top 1%. Meanwhile, student loan debt, unaffordable housing, and medical bankruptcies for everyone else. This is what the Joe Biden campaign is about. What is this country going to do about what's happening at the border in this humanitarian crisis? We'll get to that at some point, I guess. So Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez continues to ring the alarm over what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border. But MSNBC's Chuck Todd, instead of doing his job as a journalist and focusing on what the Trump administration is doing at the U.S.-Mexico border, he instead took issue with the terminology that AOC is using. Watch. Welcome back tonight. I'm obsessed with what's happening at our southern border. You can call our government's
1: detention of migrants many things, depending on how you see it. It's a stain on our nation, maybe. A necessary evil to others. A deal with untenable situation, perhaps. But do you know what you can't call it? Take a listen.
2: The United States is running
1: concentration camps on our southern border, and that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. I was obviously New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on Instagram. After being criticized, Ocasio-Cortez tried to make a distinction between concentration camps and Nazi death camps, where the industrialized mass slaughter of the Holocaust occurred. Fair enough, but Congresswoman, tens of thousands were also brutalized, tortured, starved, and ultimately died in concentration camps. Camps like Dachau. If you want to criticize the shameful treatment of people at our southern border, fine. You'll have plenty of company. But be careful comparing them to Nazi concentration camps because they're not at all comparable in the slightest. But here's where it's uh, upsetting as her comments. Some Democrats have been reluctant to condemn her remarks. They don't want to get criticized on Twitter. Fellow New York Congressman Jerry Nadler tweeted in response, one of the lessons from the Holocaust is never again. We fail to learn that lesson when we don't call out such inhumanity right in front of us. Jerry Nadler surely knows migrant detainment camps are not the same as concentration camps. So why didn't he just say that? Why are we so sheepish calling out people we agree with politically these days? Obviously, this isn't a Democratic Party thing. It's an even bigger problem on the Republican side of the aisle when it comes to President Trump and the reluctance there. Are we really so ensconced in our political bubbles, liberal versus conservative, that we cannot talk about right versus wrong anymore? Some things are bigger than partisanship, or at least they used to be. And in the interim, the crux of what's truly at stake is lost. What is this country going to do about what's happening at the border in this humanitarian crisis? We'll get to that at some point, I guess, after we have this debate.
0: All right. Before I even go any farther with this, before I even address anything in this segment, I have to address how Chuck Todd ended this segment. Quote, What is this country going to do about what's happening at the border in this humanitarian crisis? We'll get to that at some point, I guess, after we have this debate. Does Chuck Todd realize he works for MSNBC? I mean, I'm not sure if he writes his scripts. Whoever produces the show, whoever wrote the shit that came out of his mouth in this segment, You have the resources. You have the money. You have the power to cover what's happening at the border. Why are you focusing on terminology over the actual deaths that are happening in these camps? I mean, I'm trying not to yell and get crazy here, but this is insane. I mean, to him, for him not to realize what's coming out of his mouth, this is. uh, Look, I want to know where to put the blame here. Because I'm not sure if it's Chuck Todd who honestly has always been completely stupid. But it may just be because he's the, the people that are writing his scripts, he's just reading what's in front of him. And he doesn't actually process any of it. So I don't actually know where to put the blame. But there has to be at least, at least some blame here put on Chuck Todd and MSNBC for producing this absurd segment. Now, let's get... So obviously the terminology here doesn't really matter. But if you want to focus on that, if you want to play this game, Chuck Todd is also wrong about that. So let us first uh, let me first show you just a small piece of this segment again, where Chuck Todd literally he, he contradicts himself just a sentence later. So he first says that AOC is, uh, is not referring to Nazi death camps. And then he says, well, be careful about referring to these camps as Nazi, as Nazi death camps. So watch this piece. Ocasio-Cortez tried to make a distinction between concentration
1: camps and Nazi death camps. If you want to criticize the shameful treatment of people at our southern border, fine. You'll have plenty of company, but be careful comparing them to Nazi
0: concentration camps. So that's within (laughs) several seconds. Those two comments. He says that she makes the distinction. And then he goes on to say, well, be careful about comparing them to Nazi death camps. She never did. And you said so yourself that she didn't do that. Uh, just, this is like, uh, this kind of stuff make it, 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 I'm speechless. I'm speechless at how terrible this is. So let me go to uh, AOC's response here. We are calling these camps what they are because they fit squarely in an academic consensus and definition. History will be kind to those who stood up to this injustice. So say what you will. Kids are dying, and I'm not here to make people feel comfortable about that. And she is exactly right. So even if you just want to have the debate about the terminology, AOC is correct and Chuck Todd is wrong. So this from Esquire, which this this article actually came out a week ago, even before this whole debate. An expert on concentration camps says that's exactly what the U.S. is running at the border. Quote, What's required is a little bit of demystification of it, says Waitman Wade Bjorn, a Holocaust and Genocide Studies historian and a lecturer at the University of Virginia. Quote, things can be concentration camps without being Dachau or Auschwitz. Concentration camps in general have always been designed at the most basic level to separate one group of people from another group, usually because the majority group or the creators of the camp Deem the people they're putting in it to be dangerous or undesirable in some way. So that's one opinion. Let me show you another one. So this is from Andrea Pitzer, the author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. She wrote this in GQ How the Trump administration's border camps fit into the history of concentration camps. People today tend to think of Nazi death camps as defining the term concentration camp. But before World War II, This phrase was used to describe the detention of civilians without trial based on group identity. During a rebellion in Cuba in 1896, the Spanish Empire swept rural peasants, mostly women and children, off the land. Declaring them a threat, Spanish forces held them behind barbed wire in fortified cities. Around 150,000 people died. Three years later, America opened its own concentration camps for women and children as part of an effort to suppress a revolt in the Philippines during the Philippine-American War. And she goes on to list many other examples from history, saying that today's U.S.-Mexico border camps are the heirs of these concentration camps. Putting people in similar conditions will unleash illness and death. The more people who are detained, the larger these crises will become. By the time a country gets to the point that those in power and a majority of their supporters embrace policies that back up virulent rhetoric and accept detention as the central response to a political or humanitarian problem, it is very difficult to undo. This year, we have seen the border camps grow and the declaration of a phony national emergency that is turning into a real one. If the administration were focused on humanitarian issues, these facilities might have more in common with refugee camps, But the administration has repeatedly lied about family separation, claiming at first that it wasn't happening, while taking children from parents as a form of deterrence. President Trump's antipathy to Mexicans and Central Americans is being transformed into policy at the highest levels of the most powerful government in the world. In combination with miserable conditions on the ground and brutal acts by agents charged with enforcement, U.S. detention camps, which were already abysmal under several prior presidents, Have evolved into a more dangerous entity. So, even if you were super obsessed with just the terminology over what's happening at the border, AOC is correct. Now, uh, just another example look at what the Trump administration is fighting against. So, this tweet from uh, Brad Heath of USA Today. The Trump administration argued uh, argued in court Tuesday that the government is not required to give soap or toothbrushes to children apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border and can have them sleep on concrete floors in frigid, overcrowded cells. And as Ben Dixon sarcastically retweeted out, But please, whatever you do, don't call them concentration camps. I mean, this obsession over the terminology, even when they are wrong and these are concentration camps, is just completely insane to me. Now, there's even more reading on this. So this from uh, the foreword, which is a news and opinion from a Jewish perspective. Quote, As a Latina Jew with the lived experience and perspective I carry, I believe that AOC's use of the term was necessary and appropriate. My people are in concentration camps today, just like they were during the Holocaust, writes Tay Phoenix. But regardless of the term there is a larger issue here. People under the government's watch are dying in these camps. So this from NBC News. 22 immigrants died in ICE detention centers during the past two years. An NBC News analysis of dozens of government reports, death reviews, and audits of ICE detention centers reveals a system long riddled with problems. And at least six of those deaths are children. Previously unreported sixth migrant child died in U.S. custody last year. The 10-year-old El Salvadorian girl who entered U.S. care in March 2018 died in September of fever and respiratory distress. But what is Chuck Todd's focus here? The terminology. Oh, concentration camp is too strong of a term. You might offend some people. While children are dying under the custody of ICE. I, I mean you have the resources. MSNBC has the resources. They have the ability. Chuck Todd and his team have the ability to cover this story at the border. They can be there. They can be fighting to see what is actually going on in these camps. Yet here they are, focused on the terminology of AOC, calling them concentration camps, which is still the correct terminology. Now, here are some more reactions from uh, Twitter. So Amir tweeted this out. Imagine watching people being concentrated in camps and, as a journalist, seize the moment to, yes, attack those rightfully calling them what they are, concentration camps. You're an insult to journalism, Chuck Todd. Just glad Tim Russert didn't get to see you uh, piss on his legacy. Yeah, so uh, Tim Russert, if you didn't know, is, of course, the uh, former host of Meet the Press, which Chuck Todd now hosts. This from uh, Palmer Report. Chuck Todd wants to make himself look good by making both sides look equally bad, so he hits strong Democrats harder than he hits weak Republicans, biased for the sake of appearing unbiased. Worse, he thinks politics is just a fun game, even when lies are on the line. Fire him. And this from Jamila Udin. Why is Chuck Todd and Liz Cheney more upset about the word concentration camps than the actual atrocities happening in concentration camps on the border? Help me understand. Yeah. There is no understanding it. I, I honestly can't explain it. I don't know why they're focused on AOC's terminology as opposed to what is actually happening at the border. There is no reason to not challenge the Trump administration on this policy issue. Uh, I, I mean, this is this is absurd. This shows you how terrible the corporate media is. Again, they have the money. They have the power, the resources. They can be doing and should be doing everything they can to actually report on what is going on at the border. But instead, Chuck Todd wastes his time focused on the terminology of concentration camps as opposed to what is actually going on in those concentration camps. It's completely embarrassing.
2: The other thing that frustrates me is people who have experienced poverty who have gotten the straps for their bootstraps, (laughs) who sit and talk about how we shouldn't do anything for the next person.
0: Congresswoman Ilhan Omar gave an inspiring speech during a committee hearing that I want to share with you. Watch.
2: I'm I'm a little frustrated because I heard a lot about love. And one thing that I know is it's not because of the lack of love that we're not able to feed our children. It's not because the lack of love that we are able to house people. It's not the lack of love that we are unable to um, uh, uh, save people from dying because they don't have health care. It's not because of lack of love Um, that uh, you were able to finish college because you got help with childcare. Love has nothing to do with this, and if you want to bring love into this, you got to bring radical love, because radical love means that we radically love every single person within our communities to make sure that we are providing for them the basic rights as humans. That's what love is. And that's the godly thing to do. You can't pray for your children to be fed, so you're not crying because they're crying and they can't go to bed. You cannot pray for your medical bills to disappear. You cannot pray for the mold to stop poisoning your children in the classrooms. The other thing that frustrates me is people who have experienced poverty, Mm. who have gotten the straps for their bootstraps, (laughs) who sit and talk about how we shouldn't do anything for the next person. See, as someone who knows severe poverty, I lived in a refugee camp on the floor, no water, nothing. And I hear somebody say, here in the United States, they're fine with their grandparents not having running water? Mm. And that's supposed to be okay? Mm. We don't get to have those kind of conversations. Mm. The conversations we get to have is how we are responsible for fully funding our schools so all of our children have the opportunities we have as we sit in this room. We get to talk about the kind of opportunities we have as government to make sure health care is provided to everybody so that we don't have people dying in the United States yes. because they can't afford insulin. The conversation we get to have is making sure that there are no children, no children going to sleep hungry or being shamed in classrooms and in lunch rooms because their families don't have enough money to pay for their lunch. The conversation we get to have about the kind of poverty we have in this country is the kind of poverty that says it is okay for us to take photo pictures with veterans and be okay with the fact that they're sleeping on the streets here in the United States. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So as an immigrant, as someone who came to this country hearing about American exceptionalism and prosperity, I am appalled Mm. that we get to sit here and have conversations as Americans about being the most charitable country in the world and not being charitable enough to house our homeless, Mm. feed our children, care for our veterans.
0: So I thought that was incredible. Now, to be honest with you, I don't know the context of this clip. I was searching everywhere online, uh, and it didn't really appear to be covered anywhere. So I'm not exactly sure. I, I got this off of Ilhan Omar's Twitter account, so I'm not sure the you know the context in terms of who she was speaking to or, or, or whatever. But um, just this on its own, I mean, the points that she makes here about how like the one of the ones that really stood out to me was her quote saying. Uh, you can't pray your medical bills to disappear. I mean, the work of politicians is supposed to be to help people. So talking about how, oh, you know, yeah, we care about our veterans and, you know, America's the best country in the world, but not actually doing anything to help people. I mean, I don't understand how, honestly, most of these politicians live with themselves. They're there to help people, yet what they do instead is answer to their donors. That's what they care about. And Ilhan Omar brought up how there are people that have experienced poverty, that are in Congress, and they still, instead of spending their time trying to push uh, past bills to help people, they instead have completely forgotten all the the hardships that they've went through and have just sold out to special interests. It's amazing to me. So the real issue here is a lack of political will. There is a lack of political will in terms of pushing uh, bills to to actually help individuals. Like Medicare for All would drastically, I mean, it would completely transform the healthcare system and it would have benefits even outside of healthcare. It would free people up from having to worry about uh, medical debt from having to have money to be able to spend when it comes to deductibles and co-pays, even if you have insurance. Not to mention it frees you up uh, from having to stay with a company that you don't want to stay with. So having a um, a Medicare for all system gives you the freedom to leave a job that you might not like, but maybe you have good health care. But now you have the freedom to leave that job and maybe start a business, maybe apply somewhere else, maybe, you know, pursue a career that you actually want to be in. So just, I mean, on the issue of healthcare alone, there are so many positive aspects to uh, pushing for a, a Medicare for All system. But I want to also um, touch on here Ilhan Omar. So she, she is uh, pushing this uh, No Shame at School Act, which uh, stands up for students who can't pay for lunch. Now, this is something that I didn't even know was happening in America, where schools are actually shaming kids that can't afford lunch. So check this out. Quote, Across this country, students who, uh, whose families are struggling to afford school meals are being singled out and humiliated at lunchtime, Omar said. These students are subjected to various shaming practices by the schools. In a press clip posted to Twitter, The Minnesota lawmaker mentioned instances where students had been forced to wear wristbands for not being able to afford lunch or given unappetizing replacement meals like cold sandwiches. She mentioned that some students were even named in public lists as children with outstanding debt. This culture of lunch shaming has to end, Omar asserted. Under the No Shame at School Act, schools will be forbidden to publicly identify students who cannot afford to pay for their lunches. Identification methods that would be prohibited under this legislation include tokens, wristbands, and public lists, according to the Star Tribune. The legislation would also prohibit debt collectors from accessing school lunch fees. In addition to this, according to Omar's legislation, schools that have students who can't afford to pay for lunch will be required to certify the pupils and allow them to access meals. Such schools would be eligible to receive reimbursement from the federal government for up to 90 days, the Star Tribune reported. So, Ilhan Omar is one of the rare politicians in Washington that actually cares about people, that has taken her experience of uh, you know being in in a camp as a child and understanding what that was like, what that kind of poverty was like, what that experience was like, and learning from that, and taking that experience to actually help people moving forward as a politician who has the power to do so. So this is uh, it's unfortunate this is so rare. This is a rare politician that isn't doesn't care about, you know, special interest money, isn't focused at all on that. She is completely focused on what her job actually is, which is helping people.